0: Show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today rainy Arlington, Texas, as we wait for the remains of Tropical Storm. Her mean to make its way uh, just to the west of us. The, uh, the remainder of that storm is particular, uh, projected to go and uh, might even bring a little bit of severe weather for it. I'm just happy for the rain we're getting right now, good time for it. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what I did yesterday to prep uh, as far as the gardening goes as soon as we knock out our housekeeping. And then we'll be on to uh, the main topic of today's show. Since today's Tuesday, you might think it's not a listener feedback show, but it is. Because we weren't here Monday, because it was Labor Day. I hope everybody enjoyed their Labor Day off. I kept thinking it was Sunday all day yesterday. I really did, I, you know, with everything that we just like, yeah, and like you know, the, the rain will be here on Tuesday. That's two days from now. No, it's tomorrow, and things like that. With my wife and I, back and forth with each other, both of us constantly thinking it was Sunday with that extra day off. It's weird sometimes but when you have that. Hope you enjoyed it. Before we uh, get into the main show today, which is your feedback by email, which again, if you would like to be heard on a show like this uh, with your question by email... Send me an email with question for Jack in the subject line and in the body of the email, tell me your question. If you have a lot of information for your question, please tell me your question in one or two sentences first and then give me all the background you want after that. Email that to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Uh, before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, is always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, KnifeKits.com. Again, KnifeKits.com. These guys are just extremely well thought of everywhere around the Internet that we've uh, checked them out. All the blade-making forums, all the knife-making forums, all the primitive skills forums, anywhere they come up, they're just uh, one of the favorites of people out there. So we're glad to have them as a sponsor. They'll give you everything you need to learn the skill of knife-making from um, you know, where you're doing almost everything. You know, you're just buying raw materials to simple put together kits as a starting point. Check out knifekits.com. I think that knife making is a great skill for anyone to have, and for you know your bushcrafting and things like that. Having something that's unique that you've created for yourself that's really cool. And I think building your own is a great way to make that happen. Next up today is. Um, Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, Sawtooth Tactical gives you everything you need to live that tactical lifestyle, folks. I mean, uh, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, and everything else you can possibly think of for the tactical, and quite a bit of the practical as well. Tactical lighting, all other types of stuff there. Check out Sawtooth Tactical, and remember, if you tell them when you place an order that you found them on the Survival Podcast. They generally toss in a little extra goodie or two for you. So make sure when you order from Sawtooth Tactical, you mention that you heard about them on the Com. Get your goodies. The Best way to find our sponsors of the day today and all of our sponsors is go to the SurvivalPodcast.com. Look in the right hand margin of the site. You'll see all of their banners going down the right hand side. Remember, Every sponsor on this show is a personal endorsement for me. If I wouldn't spend my money with them, if um, if they're not what I feel to be good value, good quality, and take care of people, I won't let them be a sponsor on the show. And that's just, uh, I think that's kind of unique in the broadcasting field, but that's the way I feel that we should be doing things. I also want to remind you guys to check out our gear shop. We have shirts, hats, mugs, patches, all kinds of cool stuff, and lots of other cool stuff that TW and Sis Wolf are working on bringing into the gear shop. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members, along with a bunch of free videos by me, uh, about $120 worth of ebooks that are completely free for you to download, um, discounts to about 20 vendors, and more stuff coming all the time. So check out the Member Support Brigade, and you'll be supporting this show at twenty cents an episode. So if when you hang, you know, when you're done with the show for the day, if you think that was worth $0.20, cents. consider joining the Member Support Brigade. With that, let's go ahead and get into your questions, your feedback, and comments. First, I want to tell you about what I did yesterday, because uh, I think maybe it's a good time to do a little quick review of, hey, we're going into fall, what do we do with the garden? One thing I did is the uh, the plot that I had planted with amaranth and sunflower, I went ahead and uh, a couple of weeks ago cut down the sunflower and the amaranth and uh, just allowed the, the roots to begin uh, kind of r- rotting back into the soil. I went and I uh, turned in a little bit of compost, not really turned over the soil because I don't do that much anymore, but just turned in, you know, the top bit with a rake and uh, turned in some of the old mulch. Laid down uh, three furrows of fava beans, which are a good cold-weather cover crop, at least this far south, and uh, mulched over top of that. So I've got a a bed ready to come up with favas. And I also went on, you know, started doing some seed harvesting because I've got a lot of seed going on right now. Harvested some seed from sweet basil, um got a good Ziploc bag full of that. If you guys are harvesting your sweet basil seed, uh, one of the things that you can do to make your life easier is these little seed cases form on these upright stems. And what most people do is they strip that off once they dry out, and that's great. And then they sit there and fiddle through all of those little seed cases to get the little tiny round seeds out of them. Just throw the whole seed case in your Ziploc bag. You, you go out that way, and with... uh 5 or 6 plants going to seed. You can throw up a cord Ziploc bag uh in about 10 minutes. And if you really want to get those seeds out Now, you can do that when you're planting them. But if you're harvesting a bunch of seed, you're just going to go out and mass sow somewhere, maybe do some gorilla gardening or something with them. Hey, nature knows what it's doing. Those little seed cases have a purpose in nature. They kind of sloth off when it gets really wet in the spring, and that's when the seed can kind of come up on its own from there. So I generally, if I'm starting some plants that are going to be specific for planting, I'll break those seeds out. But generally, when I'm just mass sowing, hey, I just get them and I kind of, crumble them up in my hands when I'm sowing them, not when I'm harvesting them and toss them out there. Also harvested a lot of seed for Malabar spinach. I harvested a lot of seed for marigolds. Marigolds are pretty easy. You wait till the blossoms start to dry out, pull them off, and the seeds come right out. Um, I'm getting right, I'm, you know, right now I'm harvesting tons and tons of seeds because next spring, instead of dealing with this third of an acre in suburbia, I'll be dealing with my five acres in Arkansas. So I'm bringing as much seed along from the production as I can. So that's something to be thinking about yourself right now. Um, the first question I have for you guys coming from the audience today actually came from the blog. It didn't come from the audience, and it came from a person that commented on a recent episode uh, of the show in the show notes, and I do encourage you to do that as well. Please consider uh, going to the com if you take exception to something or you want to add to something or... You want to point something out about anything in one of the episodes and comment there. Sending me emails great, but if you do it on the blog, we get a discussion going. We get other people's input. It's much more powerful. But here's basically what this person said. Okay, the person that commented used the, used the handle conserving, and it's on my uh, my podcast from um, 503, number 503 from last week, The Goals of the Survival Podcast, which a lot of you guys seem to like. And I tell you that so you can join in the discussion if you'd like to. But the first paragraph is... Uh, the one that I consider a question and they say, and I did answer it in text but I want to do this on the show because I think a lot of people might be in this trap too it says about paying off home mortgage years ago I was told you want to keep a small mortgage at all times to use as a write off on your taxes so I had a goal to pay it off completely I never had a goal to pay it off completely even though I could I still have a small mortgage and until I hear about any tax benefits of getting rid of it I probably won't maybe someone will enlighten me alright and I think there's a lot of people out there that realize that one of the biggest things that you can reduce your taxes is to become a homeowner, and that is true if the money's going to be going out the door anyway. And here's what I mean. And this is, I'm going to go more in depth on the show than I did in the text answer because I think it's important that people understand the entire dynamic at work here. In the first couple of years of a mortgage, let's say you were renting for seven fifty and you buy a house and your mortgage payment is nine fifty, you'd say, well, you're two two hundred dollars in the hole at that point, but at least you own a house now. But the numbers will actually come back to you quite a bit. First of all, of that nine fifty, let's say that $150 is property taxes. Now you're at eight hundred dollars Out of that eight hundred dollars in the first years of a mortgage, most of that eight hundred dollars will be interest. Very little of it will be principal. You take all of that interest over your first year and you add it up. And at the end of the year, when you do your next year's taxes, you deduct it from your income. This is the important part. You deduct it from your income. So let's say that you were paying an average of $700 in interest a month. Well, we would take, you know, 700 times 12. And we'd get about $8,400. Now, that's you know, eighty four hundred dollars spent, but the thing about it is, let's say you're paying taxes at the twenty-five percent tax rate, um, that's twenty one hundred dollars that you won't pay taxes, right? Now it's the important thing is that you don't get the deduction of the seventy eight hundred dollars off your taxes. It's not like you owed ten thousand, now you got a seventy eight hundred dollar deduction and and now you only owe what would that be like uh twenty two hundred bucks, right? You only get the deduction off your income, right? So you take that $7,800 and you look at it as income and you'd say if I'm paying 25% taxes, then that would be $2,100. If I pay 20% taxes, it'd be a little less. If I'm in the bottom tax bracket, it'd be even a little bit less. The higher my tax bracket, the more of it I actually am going to deduct. But you have to understand, again, this is the important thing, that mortgage deduction on your your interest is not off your, your your taxes, but off your income. So it doesn't really help you other than, I'm not renting anymore, so now I get that back, because we take the 2100 in that scenario I just gave you, $2,100, right? Come out to about $175 a month if we amortize it over the year. So in year one, instead of paying $200 more to go from being a renter to a homeowner, I only pay $25 more effectively. So it works, it's a big... Advantage to be a homeowner, the tax deduction is a huge advantage because i 'm going to have cash flow out to pay for owning a piece of property anyway, and generally speaking, I can buy two to three hundred dollars more in value and in the first five years of my mortgage get pretty damn close to break even and that 's a good reason to buy the government set it up that way they want people buying they want people to be homeowners because they want you to have credit and they want you to use lots of it to buy lots of crap. And once you become a homeowner, everybody and their mother throws credit at you. Here's the the trick, though. Over the life of the mortgage, the principal that you're paying begins to go up, and the interest you're paying begins to go down. And once we cross 15 years, they get pretty close to even, and they start to go the other direction. So when you've been holding a mortgage for 20 years, the amount of deduction that you're getting has been greatly reduced. Because now maybe out of your $800 payment, uh, let's say you're paying $600, 700 in principal and maybe only 200 in interest. Now only $200 is interest, so that is the $200 is tax deductible. So now your, your tax deduction is on $2,400. So you save 25% of $2,400 or about $600 a year if you're at a 25% tax rate so $600 a year, while you're still paying on that full mortgage. So there's no advantage to holding a mortgage when it comes to taxes if you can pay it off and get rid of it. Because now you can pay yourself the $1,000 mortgage payment. Yes, you'll pay taxes on all the money instead of part of the money, but you're still going to come out financially ahead. This isn't, why did I go into all this? Because this is another example where people that claim to be financial advisors and investment advisors and, you know, all these different accountants and all these different people say this shit. Oh, well, if you have a mortgage, you get a tax advantage. But they don't explain to you what they mean by it. So you run around thinking, well, it's great to just always have a mortgage. In fact, if I get close to paying my mortgage off, I should refinance and have at least some mortgage so I retain at least some of the tax advantages. Here's what I said on the show or on the on the show notes, and this is what I'll do for anybody out there. Um, what it comes out to is you spend about $8,000 and you get about a $900 tax deduction. I am benevolent. I am a benevolent man. For every $8,000 you send me, I will double the tax deduction and I will send you $800 back or $1,800 back. So send me as many $8,000 checks as you want, and I promise to send you an $1,800 refund. And then you can give me the money instead of the government. That's what you're effectively doing when you choose to hold on to a mortgage. Mortgages are not inherently evil. They're the one place that I really understand people borrowing money. But if you get to a point where you can own your house outright, get it done and start putting all the money into your own savings and into your own resources. Uh, Let's go ahead and take one that actually came in by an email. Uh, this one come in from, came in from a, a fellow called Arnold, and it's a report on Yahoo Finance that came out of the Wall Street Journal, and uh, it's an interesting thing, and I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to discuss it a little bit, and the title is uh, U.S. economy is increasingly tied to the rich, and it's by Robert Frank, and I think a lot of people are going to get the wrong view of this at the end, um, so I'm going to try to correct some of it so people will understand exactly why this is actually always the case. Who cares, and this this is written by a gentleman by the name of Robert Frank, again, I don't know if I said that, Um, who cares how the rich spend their money? Well, perhaps everyone should these days. Consumer spending accounts for roughly two-thirds of U.S. gross domestic product, or the value of all goods and services produced in the nation, and spending by the rich now accounts for the largest share of consumer outlays in at least 20 years. In other words, the rich are spending money. According to new research from Moody's Anal- Analytics, the top 5% of Americans by income account for 37% of all consumer outlays. Outlays include consumer spending, interest payments on installment debt, and transfer payments. By contrast, the bottom 80% of income, uh, the bottom 80% by income account for 39.5% of consumer outlays. So 5% are adding up to 37 percent, and 80 percent of the, the poorest people are only spending 39 percent. So the top five percent are almost outspending the bottom 80 percent. Is the, the short the, the short uh, version of that? It is no surprise, of course, that the rich spend so much since they earn a disproportionate share of income. Aren't they evil? You can just hear the evil connotations there. According to economists, the economists Emmanuel Saez and Thomas Piketty, the top 10 percent of earners captured about half of all the income as of 2007. So the top 10 percent of earners in this country earned half of the income. What's surprising is just how much our consumer economy is now dependent on the rich, and how they that share has increased as the U.S. emerges from the recession. In the third quarter of 1990, the top 5% paid, uh, accounted for 25% of consumer outlays. That held relatively steady until the mid 1990s when it started reaching past 30%. It dipped in 2003 and again in 2008, but started surging in 2009 amid the greatest bull market rally in history, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average rising nearly 50% in the last nine months of the year. Mark Zahn, chief economist for Moody's Analytics, cites two main reasons for the increase. First, the wealthy panicked during the financial crisis and stopped spending. When the markets rebounded, they came out of their shells and started spending again. I think that pent-up demand was unleashed, he said. It's a universally high rate of spending. The second reason is that people in the middle and lower income groups are struggling to pay off debt, stay, uh, stay afloat amid rising unemployment, as Friday's data reminds us that has crimped their spending. So, there's a little bit more, but you can read it. I'll put a link in today's show notes. But here's the problem. They keep saying consumer-driven economy, consumer-driven economy, consumer-driven economy, and those rich people are out there spending 37% of all the consumer-driven economy stuff. Now, when you hear that, you're probably thinking iTouches and iPads and iPhones and gizmos and gadgets and cars maybe, you know cars are part of that, uh, as long as they're built and made in America or their their service value add is done in America um, you might even look at things like um, I don't know but you're going to think of the consumer level crap sector and, and the most expensive thing you're going to think of is probably cars, and you probably won't even really think of those until I kind of brought them up for you, you think, okay, yeah, well that's a consumer good, it's a give out and buy um, this is based on gross domestic product that 's all the output and production of products and services in the united states so when um when Accenture pays their accounting firm a couple hundred million dollars a year to do their accounting that's part of our domestic GDP okay when um you know Donald Trump buys a new jet that's part of our GDP as long as he buys it from an American manufacturer when a new company, when a company decides we're going to build 27 new stores in America and they hire a contractor to come in and build them and then they hire people to come in and work in them, that's part of our GDP. It, obviously, these people doing these things are the wealthiest 5%. So they're always going to spend a disproportionate share of the GDP and we need them to because if they don't, we don't get new buildings and we don't get new jobs, Um When you read this, what you end up seeing here at the end is they say, we're already seeing a slowdown in spending by this group. And I think that should be a worry for all of us. Um, yes, it's always bad when the rich stop spending their money. Uh, because when the rich stop spending their money, they stop fueling the economic growth of the nation. But I want to take the Jack Spirico survivalist, you know, view of this thing and tell you what they're not saying because they don't see it because they stick to, you know, the basic book, uh, mathematics and economics here instead of looking at the psychology of the situation. Do you know why the rich people spent so much money in 2009? The stock market going back up was part of it, but that was not really what happened. What happened is what I told you would happen in 2008. The entire world went on sale. The entire world went on sale. Interest rates to borrow money right, went to to the lowest they've ever been. Contractors are starving to death for money. So they will kill each other to win a bid right now. Products costs are at an all-time low. Lending all-time low labor all-time low, and the stock market rebounds, and the smart rich person pulled their money out in advance of this disaster, threw their money back in, and made a whole ass load of something called capital gains that they have to pay taxes on. Now, the way that we don't pay taxes on the capital gains, and we build our wealth for the future, is to put it back into our business. So, with money at an all-time low cost to borrow, and construction at an all-time low cost to build, a lot of these people started expanding. And they started building these new stores and building these new shops. You say, but you know, that where are the jobs that come with them? Well, a lot of these people already have location A. They build location B. They close down location B and they move their staff into location A. That's spending. The economy looks better. But location A that's been abandoned was being leased. Okay? So what happens? That person that was leasing that property now is stuck with it. And all of the new building we've seen, very little that has actually been real expansion. It's been more upgrades. You know, a, a company upgrading to a better type of building, to a better area. A lot of little commercial investment parks went in and put together great, brand new facilities. And then they went to the people that were in the older locations and they said, Look, we built cheap, <clears throat> but we built new and we built nice. We will match whatever you're paying your lease right now, or we'll do a little bit better. And they, 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 brought in new people, and that's capitalism, that's a good thing in a way, but it's leading to a further downturn in commercial real estate, because of all the people that were landlords of these commercial properties that lost tenants, you know, the ones that kept raising the rent, raising the rent as times were good, and then instead of really stockpiling the capital, they went, wow, look, my property's worth more now, I can prove it to the bank, since my cash flow's gone up, I can go get more money and do another project, And now you're starting to see the commercial sector collapse in a lot of areas. because Not because the the tenant so much can't pay. There's that too. But in the last year, because the tenant went somewhere else. they went to a new building. And it's happening everywhere. That's part of the GDP spending. But what it really comes down to, and this is what I've told you about, making sure you're saving your money and building your wealth. When bad times happen, rich people have more power when they spend. And the wealthy have been out spending money. You can play that game too. Now, instead of buying a building, you might be buying a used pickup truck or a used boat. Or paying a contractor a cheap wage to build you a beautiful commercial greenhouse operation. Or whatever it is that you want. But this is what happens when economies falter. Rich people always spend more money after an economy falters. They may curtail it if they don't see the recovery. But at some point, the money, the wallet's open and the money flows. That's what they won't tell you on CNN Money. Let's go ahead and take another one of your uh, questions or comments. Yeah, this one comes from a feller called Justin. Justin says, hey, I find myself in the woods for an extended period of time living off the land. Are there easy methods of preserving meat or fish without having to stay in one location too long? I live in West Virginia, not far from the Shenandoah Mountains. If I found myself living off the land, an ideal situation would be to preserve any game or fish that cannot I cannot eat in one sitting. Gathering food every day takes a lot of effort, but if I were able to catch a few fish, kill a larger animal with enough meat to provide a good source of protein for, say, a week or two, I would be able to focus my attention on other aspects of survival during the winter. The cold weather would make food preservation easy, uh, but what would I do during the summer months? Um, drying, smoking, salting are your easiest ones in the woods. Um... Salt is something you definitely, if you go into the wilderness, it's probably one of the most overlooked things that people don't take with them that you should take with you. And a little goes a long way with salting meat or salting fish to help dry it out. Maybe less than ideal, but speeding that drying process. It also has uh, a lot of other uh, really good attributes that we'll save till later. But make sure salt goes with you. Smoking. Uh, you know, if you have a good little, like, bug-out location in the woods, if you have something along the lines of a, a small cabin or a hooch or something like that, you can stockpile stuff in, stockpiling, uh, you know, vinegar, uh, salt and pepper, and you've got the makings of biltong. Uh, you might even add to that some smoking if you're in a humid environment and make kind of a hybrid of jerky and biltong, um, because you're dealing with the humidity and, you know, we're Biltongs from South, South Africa. It's made in the winter when the humidity is almost non-existent. Um, I've been in dry environments like that. And to give you an example of what, what that's like, Panama's like that about two to three months a year during the dry season. And during the rainy season, it's extremely humid. Down there, if you scratched yourself going through the jungle during the humid time of the year, uh, you'd have several weeks before that wound would be completely gone. It had a high propensity to get infected. And um, with nothing else, it was just there. Even if you kept it clean and bandaged and all, it just took a long time to heal. In the dry time, let's say you did this in February when there's like no rain, they're worried about grass fires and things like that, you get the same scratch. Two days later, it's got like a little light scab on it. And three days later, you're like you brush the scab with your hand and it just falls off and it's pink skin underneath and it's healed that's what moisture does to any kind of flesh in this case living flesh versus dead flesh but but that's an example of why it's difficult to make biltong uh by traditional methods in very humid environments that's why i advise you to make it indoors where it's air conditioned uh it's much drier in in your house than it is outside if you have an air conditioned home uh so biltong you might have to with that environment up that humidity you might have to do a little bit of smoking so slow smoke over a fire but prepped like biltong Jerky is the easy one for any red meat, though, because you can make that with no smoke whatsoever, salted and and sun-dried, but very thinly sliced. Fish, a little bit more difficult. Smoke and salt are your friends, but probably the most traditional and best way to do your fish is fillet both sides back to the tail, but don't cut the tail off so you have like a butterfly of two fillets. Then leave the skin intact, but on the flesh side, about every inch or two, cut a deep cut all the way back to the to, to the skin in your meat, and then lay that lay it skin side down, hanging open, so that the fish can dry out. Salt, smoke, uh, those are your best uh, things you can do. Now, a good oily fish like salmon from clean water, where it's safe to eat, basically raw, you could just cut it like I described and just hang it and let it dry. Um, it would still probably be a good idea to cook that meat before eating it. What about sushi? Well, sushi comes from salt water. There are things that can live in the flesh of freshwater fish that do not live in the, uh, in the flesh, f- flesh of saltwater fish. Now, saltwater fish can become infected after they've been caught, but if they're properly cared for, that's not a concern. It's not a good idea to go eating sushi from a brook, brook trout in the mountains. You might do it 10 times in a row, and you might be totally okay. And the 11th time, it might make you very sick. And the 12th time, it might kill you. You just don't know. Um, it's not the same thing as eating saltwater fish. So that's that's where that difference come in, comes in. But it's all going to come down to salt, smoke, dry. Those are your big ones for wilderness and dealing with your meats. Cooking meat. Will also make it last longer, but not anywhere near as much longer as good slow smoked out jerky or bill tonging or something like that. Uh, great question. Let's go ahead and take another one. Um, this is uh, this is big news. It comes from Eric. Eric's always sending me great stuff, and uh, I believe this happened a, a few weeks ago. Uh, August sixteenth is the date on it. It's by a guy named Joe McDonald. It's from the Associated Press, and it makes it official, right? Associated Press. We can. It's not some crazy blogger like me or something. China surges past Japan as the number two economy. Is the U.S. next? Uh, Beijing, China has eclipsed Japan as the world's second biggest economy after three uh, three decades of blistering growth that put overtaking the U.S. within reach in ten years. Japan is still far richer per person after confirming Monday that the economic output fell behind its giant neighbor for the three months ending in June 30th. However, the news is more proof of China's arrival as a force that is in, uh, altering the global balance of commercial, political, and military power. Analysts are already looking ahead to when China might match the United States in total output, which the World Bank and others say could be no more than a decade away. Ten years, folks. Ten years. This means the world will pay more attention to China, especially when most Western countries are mired in the bog of debt problems, said economist Lu, I won't even try to say it, (laughs) Lu, at the Industrial Bank in Shanghai. Unseating Japan after earlier passing Germany, France, and Britain caps three decades of breakneck growth that has cemented a dramatic change in China's place in the world over just the past five years. State-owned Chinese companies have emerged as major resource investors, pouring billions of dollars into mines and oil fields from Latin America to Iraq. Chinese pressure helped win a bigger voice for developing economies in the World Bank and other global institutions. On a human level, China's rise has allowed hundreds of millions of people to work their way out of poverty and set a flood of students and tourists to the West. Its consumers are so avidly courted that companies from Detroit automakers to French handbag producers now design goods to suit the Chinese tourist folks. I added a little bit there. It says to suit them, but that's what they're saying. Still, China's rise has produced glaring contradictions. The wealth gap between an elite who profited most from three decades of reform and its poor majority... It's so extreme that China has dozens of billionaires, while the average income for the rest of 1.3 billion people is among the world's lowest. Sound like America in 1900? I'm not putting America down. I'm just saying it's easy to forget our past. I keep telling you where China is in the growth curve, and no one wants to listen to that. Uh, by contrast, Japanese people are still among the world's richest, and the per capita income of thirty-seven thousand eight hundred last year, compared with China of thirty-six hundred dollars. So our Ameri- so our Americans at $42,000, 42, their economy is still by far the world's biggest. According to Monday's report, Japan's nominal GDP was worth one point two trillion. Uh, in April to June quarter, compared to $1.3 trillion for China. Those figures are converted into dollars based on average exchange rates for the quarter. World stock markets mostly fell on the news that Japan's economy grew just 0.1% in the second quarter, far short of expectations and well behind the 1.2% growth of the first quarter. The report follows signs last week that both the U.S. and Chinese economies are not growing as fast as earlier in the year you could read the rest if you want to because it goes into the midst of a global crisis stimulus driven Chinese growth at 11.9 whatever all they're is China grew through the through the uh, the collapse um, here's here's the key this is what people don't get about China China is United States 1880 to about 1940 right now that's and they they'll go through what took us 60 years in 20. Because everything moves faster due to technology and rapid advancement and things like that now. China is still willing to send 30,000 guys out to build a road or a bridge or a dam and accept the fact that 10% of them will die on the project. I'm not saying good, bad, or indifferent. I'm saying that's where they are. And you look at it and go, oh, you know, so awful. How many people died building the Hoover Dam? How many people died building the canals that brought water to the west coast of California? You know, Because they, they have lots of salt water there, folks, but they need fresh for drinking and crop irrigation. How many people died building the canals in the northeast that connected the northeast to the Great Lakes before we had all the railroads and all the, the actual roads and all the automobiles? Lots and lots and lots of these people died doing this work. Um, the United States was developed at a breakneck, insane speed that cost a lot of lives. And that 's what China's doing today they're making those sacrifices beyond that what China is doing that the u s never really did is they're buying up the rest of the world. The United States went in and we kind of sunk our teeth into it uh, and we bought it from an investor standpoint in other words, you know the Carnegies bought offshore property and bought offshore interests and things like that and the, you know what have you and all these other different um, all these other different wealthy families the Rockefellers etc. The Chinese companies being state-owned when they do it, and the Chinese government itself has gone in, and I've talked about this before, they've gone into Africa, they've gone into Latin America, they've gone into South America, and they've gone to all these places, and they've bought interests in mining operations and in oil oil operations and in agricultural operations. They've converted their fiat money into hard commodities and hard commodity-producing assets. Exactly what I say we should be doing in America for ourselves, the Chinese are doing as a nation. We can talk about their socialism and how evil it is all we want. I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying that when we look at winning the game, these are the moves to win the game, and they're making them, and this nation is not making them at a personal or a national level. And then you'll say, well, how evil they are, but they're doing an amazing job of public relations because they are changing lives of people in all of these nations. They're not going in and enslaving these people. They're going in and hiring them. And you'll say they're paying them a low wage. Well, we do, You're, they're paying them a wage based on the economy that they're in. So that wage might look low to you, but it might be twice what the average worker earns in that economy. And these might be people without that that didn't have any job at all. As that economy develops and improves, and as they develop that nation, of course they're going to have to pay more money as the economy gets better. So you're going to have a hard time convincing a lot of people in these nations that China's a bunch of bad guys. Because I went from living in a hut to living in a little shack, and the shack's nicer. They're being very, very smart with what they're doing. And the per capita income thing is nonsensical. It doesn't really matter. Because when you have a nation with $1.7 billion, if 25% of them are in poverty, that's going to be a much bigger number than 25% of $320 million or whatever we have here. Um, by the percentages, yeah, they're still well behind us. But where was the United States in 1900? That's what I keep pointing to. People don't understand this. That's where China is. China is the U.S. at the turn of the century. Not from a governmental standpoint, from an economic standpoint. And again, they can make the leap that took us from 1900 to 2000 in 10% or less of the time. That's a decade. And that's what this article is forecasting. The U.S. position of being the wealthiest, most powerful nation in the world is, is definitely being threatened right now. Now, we have three ways we can we can handle this as a nation. We can, one, accept it and just keep doing things as we always have and allow it to happen. It's probably not the best thing to do because that means we'll still be sticking our noses in a lot of other people's business when there's another big kid on the block to get involved with it, with a big leverage point. We can fight it and try to outpace the Chinese with more debt, which will... Maybe stave it off for another 10 years and make it take 20 years instead of 10, but then we're just going to self-destruct because we've been behaving self-destructively for 50 years now, at least 50 years now with debt. Or we can accept it and look to the United States to be what it was supposed to be anyway, a shining example of liberty. And we can say we don't really need to be in 112 nations with a military presence. That that's a little bit extreme. That we need to support our troops, we need to fund our troops. Yeah, we need to make sure we send them somewhere they can do their job, but maybe we don't need to outspend the rest of the world combined on our military. Maybe that's a little bit too much. We can either become the nation that we're supposed to be, or we can become some kind of amalgamation in a global governing system. Those are our only two options. And all one has to do is look at the past and look to the future to see that. What does it mean for you? It means you need to make sure that you're independently sovereign, that you have your own individual liberty, that you do all the things that we're talking about because the position of being able to just push everybody around economically throughout the world, we're not going to have it forever. And most of us are going to live long enough to see a complete change in the global paradigm. I know that's not real inspiring, but... I'm interested in the United States being the number one country in the world for liberty and freedom. I'm not necessarily looking uh, to hold on to the capacity of being the number one nation in the world to be able to make other people do what we want. I want enough strength to make sure nobody comes here and takes it away from us. We have plenty of strength to do that. The problem is we're taking it away from ourselves. Um, Let's go ahead and take another one of your questions. This one comes from uh, Carlton. Um, This is an important one, too. Um, Carlton says, Here's an example of a common and overlooked survival situation my wife's experienced a couple weeks ago. This is why I said, Folks, prepare for the everyday, okay? She was in a car accident where she could walk away, but not drive away as her minivan was totaled. All five kids were with her, and it was literally 105 degrees. Fortunately, she was barely prepared enough to have one liter of cold water to split between her and five kids until myself and her mother arrived to pick her up and the kids as we didn't have another single vehicle to carry everyone. So two vehicles had to come get these folks. Along the same line, I know of someone who almost died due to weather in an auto accident in a Montana blizzard. One more thing to note, some people think having AAA will be a solution, but I know a lot of people who waited for AAA roadside assistance to pick them up waited almost five hours, and that was in suburbia. Don't depend on AAA in extreme weather at the least. Any other thoughts on preparing for auto accidents where you can't drive away? I think it might be useful to know a towing company you trust and a lot of other things. Okay, number one, uh, AAA is a great investment. I don't care what Colton says, AAA is a great investment. Every time I've called them, they've been there within the hour except the one time that they've got lost. AAA in the middle of a blizzard is not a good investment. Well, not really not a good investment, but not going to be able to be relied upon because they may be able to not just get to you. And even knowing a tow truck driver and call, he may be your best friend and be like, dude, I'd love to come help you, but I can't do it. Right? So we do have to be prepared. Um, five hours, if uh, anybody waited five hours for AAA, you need to be filing a complaint because they need to be getting rid of the vendor that made you wait that long. That's a ridiculous time to wait, especially in suburbia, uh, without any extraneous circumstances. So AAA is a huge advantage. AAA and rental insurance uh, will usually get you a ride. Now, you could probably even fi- pile five kids into one of those tow trucks, uh, all sitting on top of mom, what have you, if you had to. And you, they will give you a ride to a service location where your vehicle's going to, And you can usually get a rental vehicle from that location. If not from them, you can call, make arrangements to have one, uh, you know, call someone that'll bring one to you or get a ride over or what have you. So big fan of AAA. Bigger fan of being prepared like this guy's saying. Water, huge. You should have at least four to five gallons of water in your vehicle at all times. Um, you think of one five gallon jerry can doesn't take up that much space to carry water in your vehicle. Um, it could be the most critical situation in the world if you are broke down somewhere where nobody can get to you. and uh, Let's say you happen to be driving when it's 105 degrees out and you're kind of in a deserted area out in kind of a desert environment where you go through water very, very quickly. Uh, it could be That is literally the difference between life and death. Having ways to stay warm, huge. We've talked a lot about bug-out vehicles, and my belief is your vehicle should be at 80% of bug-out strength at all times. You know, there's probably a few things that you add on if you have to go um, just for spatial considerations, but the basics should always be there. Uh, bug-out bag takes up some responsibility for that. By, and, uh, you know, I, I, I love meeting people who are like, yeah, I have this great bug-out bag. I have this and that and this and that in it. And they're like, well, can I see it? And they're like, uh, no, I keep it at home. <laughs> it belongs in your car, man. It really does. It belongs wherever you go. I mean, it wouldn't it be great if all emergencies came with 24 hour advanced work, you know, no, you know, notice, you know, go home. So, big deal there. Um, we'll probably do a show, especially coming into winter now, on vehicle preps for winter. Uh, because staying warm can be extremely important. Um, you'll be surprised at how cold it becomes in a car if the heater won't run, even if you can stay in the vehicle. Uh, having a means of alternative heat, definitely many things to insulate with. Um, but the big one's water. The big one's water in the summertime. If you have water um, and you're on a road, if you're in a vehicle, you're probably on a road. If you're off-roading or something like that, you should be far more prepared. But if you're on a road, you can probably get some level of assistance in a reasonable amount of time. But boy, you can dehydrate like that. And I mean, I'm mean i sure there's people out there, as much as I've seen my wife do it by not hydrating sufficiently, I've seen it happen to people. They go from feeling a little bit woozy to completely incapacitated in 20 minutes. And once they hit that incapacitation point, it's very hard to get them to drink. They feel sick. They don't want to drink. And it's the only thing that will fix it is to cool the core temperature and get them rehydrated. And if they go to a certain point, then the only thing you can do is get them into an emergency room and get you know hydration put in via IV. Because there's people that get so bad, they can't take in any liquid at all. Um Absolutely critical. Thanks for sharing that. Again, I agree with uh, Carlton's limits about AAA, not to depend on it, but I don't think you should not have it. It is the cheapest insurance I've ever purchased that I've actually used and has paid for itself so many times over. Uh, We had a recent event a couple years ago. We were up at the Bug Out location. Uh, Transmission went out on our Dodge. It was 100-and-something degrees. I don't know. It was the 4th of July. And uh, that was the only time I waited more than an hour for AAA. And uh, that's my son used it a lot. He had this, this little gremlin with the car he bought, uh, his first car, and uh, he used it like four times in the first year, and they were always pretty quick there. We waited over an hour because the guy got lost because he couldn't find our road, uh, which can't really blame them for. Uh, but AAA was great about staying on the phone with us, getting back with us, talking to the driver, helping them get there. I definitely recommend a AAA car, but I agree with Carlton. Don't rely on it 100%. Uh, next one comes from um, uh, Eric as well. And uh, this is one that I put on. I usually don't let somebody have two in one day, but I, I brought Eric's on today because it fit well with the question earlier about preserving meat if I'm living out in the woods. And it's 46 smart uses for salt. And it's on Shine from Yahoo, which I've never heard of before. But I'll just give you a couple of uh, these. Um, you know, use for salt. Extend toothbrush life. Soak toothbrush in salt water before your first use, and it'll last longer. Should hit the fan, and you can't just go down to the store and buy a new toothbrush. Might be really useful. Um, clean teeth. Use one part fine salt to two parts baking soda to dip your toothbrush in the mix. And brush as usual. You can also use the same mix dissolved in water for orthodontic applications. Rinsing your mouth, easing mouth problems. Relieve bee sting pain. Ouch. Immediately dampen and, and, and pack a small pile of salt to reduce pain and swelling. Treat mosquito bites. A salt water soak can do wonders for that special mosquito bite itch. A poultice of salt mixed with one with olive oil can help too. Uh, get French marigold or uh, calendula, uh, pot marigold, either one. And uh, mix French marigold or uh, calendula flower in with the salt, and make a poultice of that with olive oil. Put that on any kind of insect bite. Uh, that's one for me, folks, and it really uh, will help a lot. Um, deter patio weeds. If weeds or grass grow between bricks in your patio, sidewalker so driver carefully spread salt between the cracks, then sprinkle with water and wait, or wait for rain to wet it down. Kills poison ivy. Mix three pounds of salt with a gallon of soapy water. Uh, use a gentle dish soap and apply to leaves and stems with a sprayer. Avoid any plant life you want to keep. So these are just some of the things, and there's a ton more. Uh, a lot of them very useful in a shit at the fan. Useful day-to-day if times are good, right? And useful in a shit at the fan if times get tough. So great article. Really appreciate you sharing that one, Eric. And again, I'll put a link to it in today's uh, show notes so that everybody can take a look at that one. Um, the next one's kind of interesting. It comes from a guy named Mike. Um, and Mike asked a question that really requires some analysis to understand. And I think it's important that we do that analysis because we need to understand the effects of, um, of inflation and deflation on the economy. Uh, how that affects gold and silver, especially when we look at things like the U.S. eventually losing economic prom- uh, prominence in the world. And I know people think that's overly pessimistic, folks, but I just gave you a completely credible source that says that's a decade away. And when I say prominence, it doesn't mean that we don't have power anymore. It doesn't mean that we're not extremely wealthy anymore. It just means we're not number one anymore. And I don't think that the people of this country are aware just how much We use the number one status we have to influence the rest of the world and get things done the way we want them done. We slip to number two or three. Or four. And that bullying crap, a lot of it goes away unless we're willing to use military force. And military force is not a good idea. What I'm not saying is the United States is not going to become Nigeria. Look at Great Britain. Look at France. Look at Spain. Look at Italy. Look at Portugal. Look at Greece. All of these nations at one time were global superpowers. All of these nations at one time or another traded places as the global superpower. None of them are gone. They're all still there. But how do they compare with the United States? With that in mind, let's take a look at this pretty in-depth question about gold and silver and inflation and deflation. So here's the question. Hello, Jack. My question relates to the price of gold and silver. You can read several articles each week about the potential for a parabolic rise in the price of gold or silver. Some say gold could go to $5,000. Some say 10. Some say 15. Silver could see anything from 150 to 1,000 an ounce. My question is: Will these prices of precious metals be reflective of today's dollar value, or will it be a hyperinflated dollar? Do you see where I'm going with this? If the price of metal goes up 100 times, but the value of the dollar declines 200 times. What, do, Where do we really stand? I see the value of metals rising faster than inflation in the beginning, but the inflation will soon catch up and pass past the metal pricing. In other words, at some point, you should sell your gold or trade it for another tangible asset, assuming there is something of value you need or can barter metals for. Personal note. Uh, okay, I'm not supposed to say that. Uh, it says for my eyes only, so I'll, I'll cut it off there. Okay. Um, there's a big problem with the way Mike's seeing things. First of all, we're basing it on the fact that some say gold could go to ten or fifteen thousand dollars. Do you know who says gold could go to ten or fifteen thousand dollars soon? People that sell you gold. What do they want for the gold? Dollars. If gold is gonna go to five thousand dollars soon, ten thousand dollars soon, why would you sell it? If you had the ability to own gold, why wouldn't you just hold on to it? I know somebody's going to say, well, they trade gold and they save up a certain amount of cash and then they use that cash to buy their own gold. And yeah, okay, fine. You you get my overall point of the irony, right? Silver, $150 to $1,000 an ounce. $1,000 an ounce for silver. Um, The only way for those numbers to happen are exactly what Mike's saying, and that is hyperinflation devaluation of the dollar. And what he's saying is, will the dollar devalue faster than gold? The answer is no, Mike, it can't. In an instance where gold is continuously going up in price against the United States dollar, it's not doing it against something else somewhere in the world. The only way for what you're describing to happen is every currency everywhere on the planet at the same time collapses. And then we would be left with nothing but gold, and it doesn't matter with the exchange rate because gold is the currency. Silver is the currency, and barter of many kinds becomes the currency. In a situation where the dollar collapses, it's not how many dollars you can get for your ounce ounce of gold. It's what can you get for your ounce of gold directly, or if you were in a situation where you had to leave this economy and go buy a currency that was stable, how many pounds could you get for your gold? How many yen? How many pesos? How many rupees? How many whatever? Wherever that state, you know, won. How much, how much could you, dinar? What could you get for the gold in another currency? Because that currency is still floating against the dollar. That's that hyperinflation. Um, the more likely situation is extreme inflation. Hyperinflation is where it just runs away and yeah, gold is $10,000 because the dollar's worth shit. Let's just put it that way. That's how that happens. That's how it happens quickly. Over a hundred years, hey, you know, the dollar becomes worth shit. But it's a slow, it's a slow decline of the dollar where people just accept the fact that hey, a stick of gum is now twenty bucks. Sounds ridiculous, but what do you think if you would have told somebody uh, in 1900 that people will go out and buy a pack of seven sticks of gum and pay a dollar seventy-five for it, not about an eyelash. People will go out and buy a really good cup of coffee. For four dollars and seventy five cents and not bad an eyelash. It would have sounded ridiculous. The guy worked for a week and didn't make five bucks. It seems insane that, that inflation could do that over a hundred and ten years and be completely accepted by society, but it has. So long term these numbers work. Short term they only work with collapse. And in a collapse, eventually a currency becomes worthless. There is no time where the gold becomes worthless. Whether it has to be exchanged outside the economy for another currency, or whether it's used as a barter implement. Or when here's what here's what people don't get. If a currency collapses, a nation doesn't just go away. It revalues its currency. It reverse splits its currency. It pulls its currency off the market. It issues a new currency. And you will know, we'll do something stupid like, for every hundred US dollars you get, you'll get, I don't want the conspiracy theorists to cheer here, but just, let's just do it to be fun, you'll get ten Ameros. How many Ameros will I get for an ounce of gold? See? That's where, that's where gold is the long-term insurance against currency collapse. Gold and silver are more a long-term insurance against standard inflation rates. Standard devaluation of money. Uh but to think that you will hold gold and it too will become worthless just doesn't make any sense at all. But to believe these numbers, ten, fifteen thousand dollars, one hundred and fifty to a thousand for silver in the short term, remember who's giving you the number. The gold salesman. The silver salesman. Don't trust their numbers. They're gonna tell you whatever number they think they need to tell you to get you to buy. Buy gold and silver at a rate that makes sense for you, again, I say 5 to 10%, and I find silver to be the safer play rate. Now, I'll explain why I think silver's a safer play rate now one more time. Either gold is undervalued, as all these gold salesmen say, and there's a lot of uptick left in gold. If that's the case, there's never been a time where the spread between gold and silver has been greater, and silver's extremely undervalued if gold is undervalued at all. Making silver the better play, it has more room to move up. If gold is overvalued, then we can explain the delta between gold and silver, and silver is more stable. And as gold comes down, silver won't correct as much. So that's why I see silver as a safer play. I think it has less room to fall and more room to go up. And that, to me, is is safety. If gold goes to $2,500 an ounce, which five years... Yeah, some of the crap we're going to go through, some of the destruction of this currency we're going to go through, yeah. Silver should move at least to forty to fifty dollars an ounce. And I think silver can handle that move. I don't you know, without collapse, without destruction of the currency, I don't know that gold can stabilize itself much above two to two to three thousand dollars. Silver still has headroom there. Think of all the things we do with silver and gold beyond just hold it. There are limitations to its upward momentum based on what people are willing to pay for an ounce of the stuff. How many people today don't buy gold? Not because it's not a good investment, because it just seems too expensive. $1,100 for an ounce, right? I'm going to buy poor man's gold silver. $1,100, I can buy pounds of silver. That's just a psychology thing. It doesn't really make any sense if you believe that both of them have the same upside. Whether you're holding an ounce of gold or a thousand ounces of silver, whatever, It doesn't really matter, right? If they both go up 20%, your $1,000 went up 20% as an investor. But there's a psychology at play here as well. And that has a restraint on the pricing as well. So, um, no, I don't ever see a point where inflation moves so fast, the dollars devalue so much that it outstrips the inflation of gold against it. Because what you'll see is that gold moves concurrently with deflation or inflation. If a dollar is devalued by half, gold costs 50% more if the dollar is devalued by half against the rest of the world. Because we don't just price gold in dollars, we price it in every currency that it's available, based on the relative currency strength. In other words, when you earn 50 pounds in Britain, it's a lot like earning $50 in the United States. That's relative currency strength. So what does 50 pounds buy in Britain? Pretty much the same thing $50 buys in the United States. Then there's, there's true currency strength, which is if I take that British currency and I use it in the United States, I get a two for one exchange. That's the vulnerability that we're in. And as the dollar becomes devalued more and more and more, we come, become more subjective to foreign investors coming in and buying up our nation. It's what Japan did in the seventies. What do you think China is going to do in around 2020? They have a couple hundred million people they need to find a place to send. Because they're out of space. Um, Just things to be thinking about. Uh, Last one is, Jack, do you have a suggestion for how I could find a mentor that would help teach my wife and I about firearms and hunting? Background. My wife and I recently left New York City for a job in rural Maryland. We're both excited about all aspects of firearms, from target shooting to hunting to concealed carry. However, neither of us have much experience. I used to go shooting as a kid. My wife never has. As you've suggested on past shows, we'd like to find a mentor who would work with us. So we can learn the fundamentals once we get out and buy that first 22 bolt action rifle. Uh, we're not sure how to start any suggestions. We'd be much appreciated. Thank you uh, for putting so much into the show. Well, if you said to me, how do I find people that know about produce? I would say go to a farmer's market. If you said, how do I find people that know about the Bible? I would say go to a church. If you said, how do I find a lot of single single people looking to meet other single people? I would say go to a bar. So, where do I find knowledgeable people about guns? Not that all, you know, not all the people in church will know about religion. Not all the people at the farmer's market will know a lot about produce and and farming. Uh, and, you know, not all the people in the bar that are single will be people you would want to, to meet. But there will be some of them there in all of those locations. Go to gun clubs. Go to target ranges, gun ranges. Uh, go to gun shops. Go to places where gun people hang out. Northeast, there's usually quite a few gun clubs around. Some are like the high end, rich people gun clubs that don't work out, but uh, or you know you need a kind of a, the cost of entry is somewhat prohibitive, um, and you have to be sponsored in what have you. But a lot of times there's a lot of little social gun clubs uh, that are basically amount to kind of a bar and maybe do some raffles and some shooting on the weekends and things like that. Good place to meet people. When you're looking for a mentor, you're looking for a friend. I think this is something that many people do not understand. Friendship comes before mentorship. If I'm going to mentor you, and I've mentored a lot of people in the business world in my life, I'm going to have to have an affinity for you first. I'm going to have to like something about you beyond the fact that you're aggressive and you want something in business. Well, you and I are going to have to have some similarities. And um I think firearms mentorship works that way a lot as well. If I'm going to spend time with you out on a firing range where you're holding a deadly weapon, and uh, if you do something stupid I could get shot, I'm going to have to like you. If I'm going to spend time that could be spent with my family, even if your family is involved, I could be dedicating myself 100% of my family, but I'm dedicating myself somewhat to helping you and teaching you. I'm going to like you. So the way you find friend- the mentorship is you find friendship. You find friendship around a common affinity, in this case firearms. And, uh, you just ask people, you want to go shooting this weekend? I, I need some help. Things like that. Tell people, honestly, you know, hey, this is, this is new for me. You'll find that most knowledgeable shooters actually crave teaching other people how to shoot. You also need to be aware that a lot of people that consider themselves or fancy themselves knowledgeable shooters are not great shooters. You know? But as long as they know safety, they know good places to hunt, good places to uh, to practice, and things like that. They serve that level, and they're a friend. Your greatest mentor in this relationship with your wife should be her, and she should be yours, uh, with the, the assistance of a camera. Because a prophet has no honor in his own country, and a husband and wife have no honor with each other when they say, this is what you're doing wrong, honey, when you're shooting. Neither will believe the other one. So stand off and look at form and take pictures. And look at each other's pictures together. Find those things. Uh, go take a look at my, um, my my videos on rifle shooting on YouTube. I'll put links to those today as well. And you'll learn about the common things that people do wrong with form. But get out and meet people that shoot. That's, that's your best bet. If you get out and meet people that shoot and meet other people that shoot. And focus on the friendship first. Find people that make good friends. And then talk to your friends about going shooting. And you will find that if they're shooters and they're your friends, there's no real big step there next. And what you'll find with most people that become good shooters and have good mentors is you might have one or two really best friends. And they become sort of the people that are your go-to people. But they general, you generally talk to a lot of other people. You learn one little thing from this person, one little thing from that person, and that advances further. My big concern is safety. New shooters have a propensity to make mistakes, the experienced shooters won't because they've been you know, brought up. I mean, there's things I will never do. I will, there's mistakes I will never make because anytime I got close to thinking about maybe possibly, possibly, maybe, maybe making one when I was a kid, crack in the back of the head, right? Don't do that. And that's ingraining you from such an early age that that person that has had that experience makes the perfect mentor because they're going to see... You making the safety error before you actually make it. They're going to see you turn or move or look or act a certain way and realize this is what comes next. Stop here. Don't do that. That's the best safety mentor. Um, For safety instruction, pure safety instruction, though, go see your local gun shops, your local shooting ranges, and ask if they have classes. And not necessarily tactical shooting, defensive shooting, turning your home into a Marine Corps fortress, right? Not that stuff. Basic fundamentals of marksmanship, basic fundamentals of skeet and trap shooting, basic fundamentals of handgun shooting, and take courses together. Be grateful you have a spouse that's into that and is willing to do that with you. Spend a little bit of money on it. People end up spending thousands and thousands and thousands on guns and zero dollars on training. Training is what you keep. If you have to pawn your gun someday, you know, or pawn one of your guns someday, the training you had stays with you. It never goes away. So that's the best advice I can with anybody with mentorship, though. Friendship first, mentorship second. Uh, I get approached by people. I need you to be my mentor for whatever. Hold on. Wait a minute. Why? Why would I do that? You know, you listen to my show. Great. I'm glad you do. I appreciate you so much. But I haven't even met you. I don't even know you yet. You're pitching your business idea to me and asking for business mentorship. That's a weird thing to do. It's like walking up to somebody in that bar and going, hey, you know what, let's go home and have sex and talk about getting married. that That's a lot of the time when people look for a mentor, how they approach it, right? Where it needs to be more like, hey, let's see if we like each other. Let's see if we would want to hang out with each other. Let's see if we'd want to drink a couple of beers and, and grill some steaks and let our families meet each other, right? Let's date, right, for lack of a better term. You know, you wouldn't, you know... Go to a farmer's market while a guy's doing his job trying to sell his, his wares. Say, hey, can I come out to your farm and look at what you're doing? Can you teach me? You would talk to the guy. Maybe you'd do business with him. Maybe you'd come back two or three times and see, is he really producing something you want to learn to emulate? And then you would say, hey, look, Tom, uh, you do a really great job here. You, and you talk to him at a time where he's slow. And you'd say, hey, I'd like to learn more about how, how to produce my own food. Would it be ever possible for me to come see your operation? And he'd probably be very receptive to that. Where if you jumped in the middle of them trying to do business, right? And that's that's how mentorship works. Mentorship follows friendship. It doesn't precede it. Um, you'll find that people with knowledge love sharing knowledge with people that they love, people that they care about, people that they want to see be more successful in whatever that endeavor is. And that if you're too aggressive with your, your search for a mentor, it's like being too aggressive with your search for a spouse, you know, if, if, you, if anybody's ever been on a date with somebody, you know, and you're in a grounded, strong, firm position in life, you're confident, you know what you want out of life, and you're, you know, maybe even you're ready to settle down eventually, but this is a first date, and whether the male or the female is the one that does this, on the other side of it is in kind of a, a still a codependent state, and they're really thinking about how much they need to get married, and they start talking about marriage-type questions, like a marriage interview on a first date How likely is there to be a second date? Right? Mentorship has to follow the same basic physical and um, psychological pattern. I'll go shooting with anybody, but I'm going to spend my time shooting with people, you know, uh, often that I have an affinity with that are my friends in life. So go make friends. Go make friends where people that shoot are. And mentorship will find you. Uh, there's an old saying: "When the uh, student is ready, the teacher shall appear." You just heard kind of the other side of that. It's not just about being ready, at being receptive. It's about being ready from a place and a station in life. With that, I'll go ahead and sign off. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, breathe I know The uh...